0: from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good evening. That was my interaction with <laughs> <for> the sermon. <laughs> James 5, verses 5, uh, 7 to 12. A uh, bit of an introduction, some context before looking at the content of the passage itself. We're looking at a small part of James chapter 5, following on within this series, looking at the whole of the letter of James from Peter Barnett's talk last week. If you were here, you remember he dealt with social injustice, uh, especially about wealth distribution, what God's view was about that, and what our response should be. He challenged us about how we as individuals react when we see injustice, and where we feel we have the capacity and the opportunity to react to it. Peter will be back again next week, continuing and finishing this series on James. And then, as it happens, I'm back again <laughs> the week after to introduce you to your next topic. Uh, there'll be a new series looking in detail at the Ten Commandments. And in two weeks' time, I'll do a sort of an overarching talk, putting the commandments in context. And then there'll be ten more weeks looking at each commandment in turn. So by the end of the ten weeks, you will know them all, and you'll know the order they go in as well. So, the letter of James. James, you may well have heard this. I imagine when this series started, and, and some people may have done this at the beginning of their talk as well. But just so I can straighten things up for myself, James was probably the brother of Jesus, and that's based on the authority ascribed to his teaching. It's the first of the... Uh, epistles after Paul in the Bible because he's an important person he was, if that was him uh, an elder of the Christian church in Jerusalem and, and he was writing a pastoral epistle that's what the letter of James was pastoral epistle to the Christians scattered by persecution into surrounding countries which I think today would be like Greece, Turkey Lebanon, Syria so the immediate area around um, Israel. It's important to know or to, to appreciate that when we say Christians, in this context, it actually means Jewish Christians. At that time, the Christian message was going out to the Jews that had experienced Jesus in, in Jerusalem. Today, uh, such people we would label as Messianic Jews. That's what they call themselves. They're still Jewish in culture but they believe the Messiah they were looking for has arrived, it's Jesus. It could actually be that this is the earliest letter uh, written. It's not the first in the New Testament, but it could be the earliest piece of writing we've got. Um, one of the, if, you, if you're interest, one of the one of the reasons we think this is that we know from elsewhere, we know from what Paul tells us, that James had a big thing about the Jewishness of the Christian faith, he actually clashed with Paul. Paul went out ministering primarily to Gentiles, telling them about this wonderful man and what he'd done, and the meaning for us and 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 uh, the significance of his death and resurrection. And said, "That's all you need." And James was following on, saying, "No, you, you've only told them half the story, because this is a this is a Jewish faith. This is the fulfilment of Judaism. We're now." messianic jews and they've got to be as well so he came along behind telling them all about the laws that you know the circumcision and um, feast days and and food laws and all that there's none of that in james's letter he doesn't talk about it at all so we don't think it's become an issue which tells us it's quite an early letter paul hasn't risen and started doing his work james hasn't felt the need to talk about it yet the link to what we heard last week is that the first line of this reading says, Be patient then, brothers. Or whichever translation we use. The important thing is the then, which is saying, in the light of what we've just heard, in the light of what I've just been saying, your immediate reaction to this is to be patient. And if you remember, Peter was looking through the condemnation of the abuses of wealth and God's impending judgment. Just to make sure uh, with, the, with other parts of his talk that we know what we're saying, I think we qualify this to mean that he's looking at the external world, the secular world. Because in the second section, he turns to talk to the congregation, to the people reading, the Christians themselves. So he's, if you like, in his talk, in the letter as he goes through, he sort of turned and said, I've been talking to you, now I'm, you lot over there who have made this lot suffer, the lot I'm talking to. You lot over there, you're going to get yours eventually. You, you think you've got it all right. You've got all the money. You're abusing it. You're making people suffer. And one day, in God's time, in his timing, and his judgment, he will bring you to book for what you've done. Now, family, in the light of telling them that, how do you react? That's, that's what this is about. It's an open letter, and it was read to the church... In the main, apart from that little bit, brothers. Just to clarify, depending on the on the on the translation, could be brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters. He's not just talking to men in the church. He's talking to the whole fellowship with this. And within this passage, he gives three instructions for our behaviour in the face of injustice or persecution. That's what we're looking at. When he talks about patience in suffering, we're not talking about necessarily suffering from illness. We're talking about suffering at the hands of other people or other people's actions. It's that sort of suffering. The first is, he says, be patient. Be patient until the Lord's coming, which will not be as long as you may think it will be. That's what he's telling them. The second is, he says, don't grumble smouldering resentment, which as we'll see is what it means by grumbling, smouldering resentment hurts everyone and itself will bring judgment. That's what he's warning them. And the third bit, don't swear. And as you'll see, that means, as one song said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's what he's talking about. So first of all, be patient. Within the letter, he actually talks about two levels of resolve on being patient, patience itself, but also a much stronger word, perseverance. Be patient and persevere. Patience, I think, is in within that reading is is in the in the image of the farmer waiting for his crops. He's planted his crops, he's he's tilled the land, put the crops in, he knows he's now got to wait. It's just the way things happen, the sequence. At some point it will rain, the sun and the rain will make the crops grow and he'll be able to harvest. It's about biding your time. Just waiting, take your time, don't panic, things will happen. That's what patience is about. It's a bit like saying if you're waiting in a bank queue while the person in front has a big bag of coins which they want to put into the bank. Or you're at a junction of the road trying to turn out onto a busy main road waiting for a gap in the traffic. Be patient. A gap will come along. Be patient. The money will get counted hopefully they're not going to shut the till the minute you get there that's that's according to another law that that might happen but just be patient these things will happen perseverance on the other hand is a much stronger word and james talks about the perseverance of job it's interesting isn't it we always use the phrase the patience of job but i don't think when you read the book job shows much patience He's not very patient, but he does persevere. He understands there is something happening, and he understands he's got to hunker down and get through it. Perseverance is about don't waver. Don't give up. Don't let this thing break your spirit. It's a much stronger injunction than just be patient. And there's an important point for us here tonight as Christians to understand that Christians are not exempt from difficulties. We're not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt from persecution. When we became Christians, when we gave our love to Christ, he did not give us an invisible cloche to put over ourselves, which means that nothing on the outside can reach us anymore, and we walk around in some sort of spiritual dream where everything's perfect. We go through the mess of life like everyone else does, The difference is we are not walking through it alone. The church has always, and I think will always, struggle and suffer in the face of actions and values of the secular world. Because whatever the secular world does will affect us. Scripture tells us the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous, and we have to know that the thunderstorm also lands on the righteous as well as the unrighteous but James says don't worry don't concern yourself about how unfair things are because time is running out for the ungodly and the unjust they will be judged and always remember that vengeance and just judgment is for God to administer not for us there's different ways of saying about judging. We're meant to judge in terms of measuring if someone's right or wrong, but in terms of condemning and prosecuting someone, that's for God to do. He will have his judgment in his own time, and we are to be patient, waiting for that, and to persevere through whatever problems we are suffering because of that injustice. Concentrate on how to endure rather than Worrying about the thing itself. Another image or analogy for this: when life is no longer plain sailing, we are to batten down the hatches, turn our ship into the weather, and ride out the storm. That's what we're meant to do. We can't avoid it. We can get through it, but we're given we're given the resolve to do that. You must. Well, no, I mustn't say that. I assume. I assume everyone's. Um, Familiar with Footprints, the story, yes? Does anyone not know Footprints? Okay, well, <laughs> having asked you that, I've got down here anyway. There's a man, who complains about God, who he thinks, this is, my, this is my rephrasing of it, a man complains that God has abandoned him during the hard times. That's my summary of what's going on. Why weren't you there? I've looked back, and every time, every time I went through rough times, there was one set of footprints. You went off and left me. What's the good of that, walking with me while it's nice and cosy and sunny, and the minute it gets bad, you walk off and leave me? And then we're made to say, oh, isn't that a lovely ending of the story? Because God says, no, my son, when it was rough, the reason there was one set of footprints is I was carrying you. But it always saddens me and frustrates me, that story, because I think, how much that guy's missed out. How much better he'd have been if he'd have known while he was in the middle of the mess that there was one set of footprints because at that time he was being carried. It's like the attitude of the older son in the prodigal son parable. While the younger son is away enjoying himself, spending his money, having a wonderful time, the older son complains, all that time I've been here with you slaving I've been slaving for you. That's his take on the fact that his brother's gone away and he's left at home with his father. And not my, 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 my brother's gone off and all that time I've had you to myself. Wow. It's been like being an only son all again. Isn't that great? He doesn't. He says he's got all the fun and I'm slaving. And if we're not careful, we don't appreciate that when we're struggling that God's there with us. If we appreciate and understand that, that gives us a better capacity and resolve to cope with the problems, but also our relationship with God stronger as well. We're not thinking, where are you? Why have you gone off and left me? He hasn't gone and left us. He's with us. It would be worse if he wasn't. Rose mentioned that I'd be reflecting on my life as well as the passage tonight, and Just a few words on that. You you may or may not know that I am now retired early um, from being a parish priest. I retired because I had a long-term illness and it wasn't being resolved. And so the only real way forward was to retire and and convalesce, hopefully, uh, in my own time. I struggled to come to terms with that because... When I took that last parish, I made all those promises and I felt God was calling me to go there to do his work. And then, if you like, something blew, I got ill, I had to leave. I felt I was a failure. I felt maybe God was mucking me around. Uh, You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can think about. I went through the whole grieving process that you have, which can happen for many reasons. I, I felt... Denial at first. I try to negotiate. Maybe if I maybe if I come back part time, maybe if I uh, only do a few bits, maybe I cut my work down. Maybe if someone comes to help me, I wouldn't face up to the fact that the only thing that could happen was that I should stop. And then when you realise you sh- you're not going to negotiate, you start getting angry and you start blaming people. I blamed the bishop for not looking after me and the church wardens for not sticking up for me and me for being you know inefficient and making it all go wrong i never in that bit never got angry with god and when i looked afterwards and thought how was that that's when i realized that myself going through that footprint story i was acknowledging that he was there with me he wasn't he hadn't disappeared and left me to get and make a mess of it he was there and in fact what blew my mind was to think that god was saying to me when I called you to come to this job, I already knew that this was going to happen to you. And you could say, and even bec- even though that was going to happen, I asked you to go there. Or he may even be saying, and because that was going to happen, I asked you to go there. Because it's part of my plan that that experience would do something for you and for those observing. Who knows? And eventually, having gone from the anger through the depression, oh, well, that's it then, you know, I'm thrown out in the knackers' yard, send me out, you know, to grass in the field somewhere, I came to acceptance. And when I look back at the acceptance of saying, this is the right thing, this is, you know, this is okay, which is where that guy was in footprints when he got there and looked back and, you know, and saw the footprints and queried it. Instead of querying why was one set of footprints, I was actually smiling because I thought, actually... When I went to that job, I was convinced God had called me to stay in that position at that parish until I retired, which I thought would be when I was 70. And there's God with a twinkle in his eye saying, Well, Paul, you did stay there till you retired. What's the problem? You just retired 10 years early, that's all. But I stayed there till I retired. It took patience to go through the process and it took res- resilience when i felt i was being got at to get through it but understanding all that way through that that god was there with me helped me and i hope was a witness to other people watching what was going on so that's that that's the first point about um, be resilient or be patient going through the suffering itself secondly james says don't grumble And I think here he's, whereas before he's saying be patient, be patient with what happens from outside. Be patient when the world does things to cause you suffering. This is now saying against each other. Don't grumble against each other. And the Greek word that's been translated into our Bible as grumble means to sigh or moan. It's not saying it's complaining. It's not saying telling someone there's something wrong. It's about the sighing and the moaning. What you might call passive-aggressive behaviour. You're getting angry, but you're hiding it. Let's go back to that bank queue. Here I am, waiting in the queue at great inconvenience, while someone in front wastes my time with all their coins. How can you tell how I feel? Probably because I'm rolling my eyes, looking at my watch, tutting and sighing. Poor old me. I'm not going to go and say anything. I'm not going to look for another queue. I'm just going to stand there and, oh, look at me suffering in silence. Aren't I a martyr? James says that we, there's no need. We should not be spitting and hissing like an overheating pressure cooker. That's not how we deal with these problems. Whereas in the instruction to be patient relates to the secular world and things beyond our control, don't grumble is our interactions with each other within the church family. I don't mean the church family in this room, but other Christians that are living under the same, uh, the same belief system, the same morals and ethics that we are. Just to point this out. Matthew records in chapter 18 of his gospel, Jesus saying this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, if someone takes your pen and doesn't give it back to you, that you should confront him and then take him to the vicar and then take him to the PCC and then write to the bishop because he hasn't given your pen back. We're not talking at that superficial level. But if you feel there's been an injustice done by someone in the Christian family and you're sitting there spitting and fizzing and mumbling because of it what this is saying is that's not the way to deal with it it's not helpful to anyone if you sit smouldering with resentment or even worse than that you go off and talk to a third party and mumble to them about it all that does is spread discontent What James tells us to do is to deal with it, but deal with it with Christian love. We should remember that we are God's people, sanctified by his spirit and bearing his fruits. And quite a few of the fruits of the spirit are relevant to this issue of being patient, persevering, and talking to each other in Christian love. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Relevant to this attitude. So for things that are outside of our control, or governed by the world, we should be patient, resilient, and persevere. For things we can change, which are governed by God's kingdom, because we are all within that kingdom, we should resolve the issue in love. If you remember last week, Peter encouraged us to get involved in social justice projects, which we do because we're motivated by our faith. But I would also encourage you to deal with things that make you grumble against your brothers and sisters. Make some resolve to deal with it in love. If we don't deal with these things, then the bile will eat away at our souls. The avoidance of the issue can leave our brother or sister open to hurting others in the same way. If they're treading on your feet while you're dancing with them, and you don't tell them, they'll go off and tread on someone else's feet. It's a lose-lose situation. When you tell someone, you may not get the reaction you hope for. Jesus told us that in that passage. If you go and talk to them and they ignore you, then... I would say, depending on the severity of what is you're talking about, you take it further and you say, well, you may not listen to me and believe me, but let me find some other people that you trust and they'll tell you as well. And if you don't listen to them, then we'll tell everyone and they'll all tell you. And hopefully you'll see by the weight of opinion that, that what we're saying is true and there's a need for you to address it. We've talked about discipline, discipleship in the morning talks. And one of the things about discipline is correction. And, you know, God disciplines us through his spirit, and we, in, in, a, in, in a gentle way, should discipline each other. If, if we see someone acting in an unchristian way to someone else or experiencing it ourselves, we should point it out for their good and for our good. So, persevere and be patient when it comes to things from outside that you can't deal with. Don't grumble, but actually do something to sort things out when it's each other. And thirdly, don't swear. Now, In the context of this passage, it's not don't swear as in taking the Lord's name in vain or blasphemy. This is about, although it may still involve that, but that's not primarily what it's about. This is about making oaths to give resolve. So, for example... Uh, believe me, on my mother's grave you can trust me and what it's saying when you say something like that you know, I say this on my mother's grave you're saying you can trust me that what I'm saying is true because the inference is if I was lying, I'd dishonour my dead mother's memory and I'd never do that would I? So you must take what I've just said and not question it because I said it on my mother's grave so you're actually saying this is what I'm saying I don't trust that you're going to take what I've said on its face value. so I'm going to bolster it up I'm going to bring my big brother in on the playground to back me up. Uh, You can't fight me now. I've got someone with me. Or another one. I'm saying this as God is my witness. This is true. Now, you can trust me that this is true because God will testify that I'm telling the truth. And you can't get better than that. And also you're saying, and of course, if I was lying, which I won't be. If I was, I'm opening myself to God's judgment which I wouldn't want to do. So you must listen to me and believe me. And what James is saying, you don't need any of that. You don't need to bring God into it to bolster up what you're saying. and You don't need to bring your mother's memory in. He's saying, what you, your integrity, people should know you for your Christian integrity, that when you say yes or no, I promise I'll do that and I won't do this, that you mean it. And you'll do everything in your power to keep that promise without having to invoke something. Because basically, if people don't, understand, if people don't trust you, fluffing it up with all this other stuff is not going to help. If you can't be trusted, it doesn't matter how strongly you state something, you still won't be believed. President Trump. Don't you love him? Bless his cotton socks. President Trump, last week, tweeted that he's not a racist. But he didn't just say, I'm not a racist. In fact, I'm the least racist person you've ever talked to, he said. He, he couldn't just leave it as saying, I'm saying it. He had to bolster it all up. Now, I looked at, online uh, at the tweet he made. I've never tweeted. I can't, I can't get my head around that. But he, this was a tweet he made, and people were tweeting back. And the general consensus of opinion around Trump's claim that he's not a racist and, you know, I'm the least racist person you've ever met, was saying, well, you keep professing that you're not a racist, but at the same time you're saying and doing things which people think are racist. The more that you say that, the more you convince me you are a racist. I had to look this up. I'm not that cultural. Hamlet by Shakespeare. There's a, a phrase, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Some lady, I don't know who it was, some lady in Hamlet must have said something, and she couldn't just say it, she had to really over it to make her point. And the minute you over-egg it, you think, oh, hang on a minute. They don't believe themselves, do they? <laughs> They've said that, and they're having to bump it all up. We don't need to. If you're a person of integrity, a person of honesty and trustworthiness, A simple yes or no should suffice. When you add an oath, rather than reinforcing that sincerity, it could indicate that your yes can't be trusted to mean yes on its own. This isn't necessarily the same thing as swearing in court or making promises in the wedding vows, things like that. The Bible itself elsewhere talks about, for this thing, you need to make an oath. This is talking about you generally in... Showing your resolve to do things. James is concerned with the misuse of this oath-making to bolster our resolve. He's telling us to persevere, and he's saying you shouldn't need to evoke or, or force yourself into a corner. Just do it. I'm going to do this. My yes is yes, and my no is no. I don't think that this little section stands on its own. It links to the perseverance in the earlier verses. Here's a, um, an example of something. We may have a grievance. We might say this, you've done me wrong and by God, I'll make you pay for it. Well, I'm pretty sure those I've, I've said those words at some point in the past to someone. You've done me wrong and by God, I'll make you pay for it. It's wrong on three counts. On all three of the points from this talk, that statement is wrong. First of all, Invoking God. By God, I'll make you pay for it. It should be enough. If you're resolved to do something, you don't need to invoke God to do it. Your intention should be enough. Your yes is yes and your no is no. But having said that, we shouldn't be saying it anyway because it's wrong to seek revenge. We should be leaving the judgment and the timing to God. James tells us, that God says, I know they're doing this, I'm dealing with them, I've got a message for them about the injustice they're saying. You just be patient and persevere, and one day it will be sorted out. Don't go doing something to them yourself because of what they've done. Leave it to God. And it's wrong to show impatience. You've done something, and I need to do something back. Just persevere and be resilient. And so, as a sort of a summary to this, what we see from this reading is that the secular world is full of injustice, some of which we see from a distance, some which we experience firsthand. Sometimes we can do something to lessen and counter the damage, as explored by Peter last week. We can get involved, we can go over to Calais and help with the refugees, we can help out with a food bank. There's, there's things we can do when we see locally that there are problems that need help. But sometimes the issues are beyond our control, in which case we should persevere. Persevere in the knowledge that God is still, God is always in control, and he will hold to account those who prey on the weak and the vulnerable in his own time. Secondly, the Christian world, the church is itself not free from injustice but our christian brothers and sisters should be open to correction when we point out errors and that's two way none of us are on a pedestal saying well i'm up here pointing out all your faults to you we should also be open the other way to the gentle criticism that others give us if they see us treading onto people's toes during the dance This won't happen if we bottle it up, if we just mutter about it under our breath. And it's no good for us if we do this. It's no good for them, and it's no good for the others who may suffer the same injustice in the future. And thirdly, as spirit-filled children of God, we should not need to bolster up our promises, but we should be trusted that our yes means yes, and our no means no. Amen. Good.
0: As a response to Paul's words, we're going to do a prayer activity.
1: That's not the prayer activity. That's
0: not the prayer activity.
1: My face
0: will be all out of words. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sort my pages out while you're doing that quickly. Love it. Bird, you are my rock. mucho